Welcome to the Wiser Podcast. Join us as we talk with women in surgery at Emory University and hear their stories. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Wiser. I'm Laura Schwieger, current M4 at Emory. I have the honor of introducing our two podcast hosts today, Dr. Jessica Kielsen and Dr. Emma Rooney. Dr. Jessica Kielsen is a current general surgery PGY3 at Emory and our current Wiser director. And Dr. Rooney is a second year vascular surgery fellow at Emory University. Today, we're honored to have Dr. Alamide Alibi with us. Dr. Alibi attended the University of Nebraska College of Medicine for Medical School and Loma Linda University Medical Center in Southern California for her general surgery residency. Dr. Alibi went on to complete a fellowship in vascular surgery at OHSU in Oregon, and she is now an assistant professor of surgery in the Division of Vascular Surgery and Endovascular Therapy in the Department of Surgery at the Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Alibi. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you all for having me. So to start us off, I'm going to start pretty broad. I want to know a little bit more about how you grew up and what led you towards a career in medicine. I grew up, I was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. My parents were Nigerian immigrants. They both came for higher education. My father obtained his PhD in agronomy at the University of Nebraska. And then my mother got her master's in social work. And they both worked in their careers I saw a lot of interesting things with my parents as it relates to their health and their experiences with the healthcare system. And because of that, I think because of the sum total of those experiences, I really wanted to go into medicine. I'm not sure that I knew exactly what I was going to do in medicine, but I was going to change the world and make this place better for people that were like my parents who were immigrants trying to navigate the American healthcare system. Awesome. When did you know that you were going to become a doctor? Probably fourth year of undergrad, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) I went to the University of Nebraska for undergrad. I got scholarships and the one that I found was for people that were interested in medicine. Wasn't necessarily interested. I was interested in healthcare globally or maybe like public health more so at the time. And then you get to go to these maybe quarterly or maybe twice a year, you go up to the medical center, which was about an hour away. And you go have experiences with different physicians there. They teach you different things about what a career in healthcare looks like. You know, I would go and it was more of a social event for me. It felt like I would just go and have a good time. I'd learn a lot, but I still didn't know exactly what my path would look like. Fourth year, I did all the things that all the people that were pre-med did. And I did fine, but I think I wasn't necessarily sold on a career in medicine just yet. So I applied for medical school. I got in and then I decided to defer my acceptance for one year. I think people call that a gap year now. So I actually did a lot as a musician and as kind of like an agent for some of my friends who are musicians. And I did that for a year. And I decided that I could not make it as a musician in this industry. So I would go back and become a physician. So I went to medical school thereafter at the University of Nebraska. So that place an hour away where I had my first experiences. Uh, And then I guess the rest is history. I want to know if you have any feeling of connection between being a musician and a doctor or a musician and a surgeon? I don't think I did at the time, (laughs) but in hindsight, I would say one of the things that I love the most about medicine is that you can reach so many people, no matter who they are, as a musician, as a singer, as a background vocalist, as a pianist, those are the things that I did. You really have to kind of think on your feet a lot of the time. So I feel like I do those things every day in my own way. 
in your own way. Yes. I like that answer because I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm a musician and a lot of people sort of bring up, oh, you must know how to work on a team or know how to practice something a lot. But I think that there's more nuance to it. And I like that. Going along the same path, why surgery? Yeah. So when I got to medical school, actually, the first thing that I wanted to be when I decided to go to medical school was a psychiatrist. I don't remember exactly how I met these people, but, you know, there was this summer experience that we could have where we would go to Mexico for a few weeks with a group of family practice physicians and nurses. It was a very, very small city outside of Mexico City. And we went down there and we would meet all these people and we would diagnose people for the first time with hypertension, with diabetes, with all these sorts of things. And we'd say, okay, you have diabetes. Here's what that means. Here's three months of metformin. We'll see you next year. Because these people didn't live there. I didn't live there. The people that I was traveling with didn't live there. And I felt very uncomfortable with that from a global health standpoint. Not that it's not important work, right? But I felt uncomfortable with being a person who just goes to a place once a week or one week out of a year. And I'm, I'm treating chronic conditions, people with chronic comorbidities, but I'm not able to be able to provide that chronic care for them. So I felt very uncomfortable with that. That didn't sit well with me because I was interested in public health. That was, that was my whole initial thing, global health, public health. I wanted to do at least some aspect of global health. And I thought, man, what am I going to do? I'm not sure how I can incorporate these into my future life. The following year, I went with a group of, interestingly enough, family practice doctors, an anesthesiologist, a couple nurses, and myself. And we went to Haiti. We went there for a week and we did surgery on people. We fixed inguinal hernias on men that were in their 30s that had these huge scrotums. They were previously breadwinners for their families and couldn't work because they, they were in such pain. They were so disabled from this huge hernia that they had. And we would fix that hernia and they would be healed up in a few weeks, back to work in a few weeks, and back to being the breadwinners for their families. And that big bang for your buck, you know, in a very short period of time was really what steered me towards a career in surgery. Amazing. I guess the natural next question would be why vascular surgery in particular? So I decided to go into surgery from that experience. For family medicine at my school, they would send us out to these rural locations to do family practice. So I went out to Western Nebraska. I'd never been on a farm, but I was there for a couple few months um, with family practice physicians. And for whatever reason, we always had some downtime. So the only general surgeon in you know, this large catchment area, he finds me, he's like, hey, you want to come assist me in this surgery? Sure. <laughs> you know, so I go over and help him out with these surgeries. And he's doing those inguinal hernia repairs, the lap coles, all the trauma stuff. And he also fixed the ruptured triple A's. And I thought, man, this guy can do everything, <laughs> you know, and I want to be the person who can do everything. Because I met, this is the first surgeon that I've ever met at this point. I thought that all general surgeons did that. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to be a general surgeon. I specifically looked for a residency program where, because we have to wake up early, where there would be no snow when I woke up. So I went to Southern California. <laughs> there, I very quickly found out that general surgeons don't fix <laughs> ruptured aneurysms. There's a lot of specialization when it comes to general surgery. We did vascular surgery every year through our first through fourth year in our residency out there. And I was a little, maybe not a little, a lot scared uh, when I did my first vascular surgery rotation. You know, these patients are super sick. Like they're, they're sick and they walk among us. They're, they're sick at baseline. You sneeze and they die. You just feel like you're always going to do something wrong and something bad's going to happen. And I just thought, I want to be on this rotation. So that was my first year experience. During my second year, you do your second year at the VA. 
And I remember being on the rotation, they tell you, you have to read the task two guidelines. It's this huge document <laughs> and you have to read that, those guidelines. And then these pivotal trial and uh, carotid surgery, like for asymptomatic and symptomatic disease before you come on rotation. So I read those things and I did the rotation. I, I think I did a good job. I, I got, what do they call it? Like junior resident of the year for vascular surgery or something like that. And I remember after getting that award, they told me, you know, like finger in my face, whoever wins this award, we expect that you go into vascular surgery. And I said, well, I can give it back right now. I remember there was something going on with a senior resident where they couldn't do the senior level rotation at the university that year. And they decided for whatever reason that I, the second year was going to be the senior level resident on the vascular surgery rotation. I said, no, you've got to find somebody else. <laughs> it can't be me, <laughs> but it ended up being me. I was so scared. Your first call for that. You're not in-house. And interestingly enough, my very first call was a ruptured AAA. And I've seen the seniors and I've seen the fellows do these things, get these things ready so that you can be ready for the case. So I'm going to do all those things that I've seen them do. And I remember the only thing I didn't do was call the fellow in. And I remember when the attending gets there and I'm talking with her and she was kind of newer to the institution at this point. And I remember telling her, I've done this, I've done this. What else do we need to do? Happy to get everything ready. And she's like, oh no, that's great. And I said, well, oh shoot, I forgot to call the fellow. Do I need to call the fellow? Like, oh my God, I forgot to call the fellow. And she was like, why are you going somewhere? And I was just like, well, no, but I mean, don't you want somebody more senior to help you? She said, no, you know, where I was, we just worked with residents. So I'm just going to do this case with you unless you're leaving. So we did that ruptured AAA together. And it was the most amazing experience I've ever had. You know, like you're working with someone who is used to working with residents, which means they they let you participate in a way that a senior level resident would participate as opposed to a junior level resident. I learned so much during that case in so many different ways. And, you know, while I'm on this high walking out of the hospital, I get another call for a type A with limb malperfusion. <laughs> so we get called into the OR for that. You know, cardiac surgery is already in the OR with this patient. And she said, we're just going to do a fem-fem and you guys can go ahead and do your type A repair. And I can't remember what happened where she was needed at the head of the bed. She had to go help troubleshoot something. So she said, start cutting down on the groins. Just go slow. I'll be right back. And so I exposed, I remember I was on the right side of the patient. I exposed the right femoral artery. I dig out the common femoral, the profunda, the superficial femoral, just like I've seen everybody do, just like I've helped people do in, in the past. And I was like, okay, well, she's not down here yet. She's in the room, but you know, she's not down here at the, <laughs> near the groins yet. <laughs> Maybe I should just get out the other groin, you know? So I start getting that out and I'm putting the last vessel loop on the artery and she comes back. She's like, okay, so I'm going to scrub in, you know, we'll just see. And she looks down. She's like, oh, you're already ready. <laughs> I already got both groins out. She was like, oh, wow. So after that, we just formed a really close friendship. And I don't think she was the first vascular surgeon I met, but I think she was the first vascular surgeon that really helped me see vascular surgery in a different way than the scared intern saw it. And also saw see vascular surgery in a way where I could see myself as a future vascular surgeon because she was the only woman that was there at that time. That's awesome. Probably slightly related to that. I want to ask you a little bit about mentorship. I'm just going to start by saying that I really appreciate you as a mentor. And some of the things that I really value are that you're available and you're honest. And it's not always the most easy to hear someone give you really honest feedback or honest mentorship, but it's always made me better. And I think you're really invested. I want to ask about what you think makes a good mentor and how you think women can be strong mentors and advocates and leaders for each other as surgeons. 
When people ask this question about what's a good mentor, a lot of people will kind of lean towards the three A's, the able, affable, available. I try to be those things. But as you mentioned, honesty is really important. And being honest and being direct, even when it's hard for you as the person giving the advice, and even when it's hard for the person who's getting the advice, as long as you're genuine, and as long as they know where it's coming from, I think it's always going to be received well. And I, I think in those situations, um, you just really need somebody to tell you what's actually going on. If you're always told that you're great, if you're always told that, you know, there's nothing that you can improve on. If you're a surgical trainee, there's always things you can improve on, right? That's why, that's why you're here. You're here to learn. And so if, if you're always told those things, how can you really grow? And particularly when I see people that you just see so much talent within them and you see that their trajectory is so far, maybe they don't see it themselves, but you can see it in them. You really need to cultivate that. And it really starts sometimes with hard conversations. Do you think there's anything specific or different to being a mentor to a female trainee or even a mentor to a Black trainee and someone from a similar background as you? I think back to my own experience and the experiences that I have heard from you know people over the years, and we all know that surgical training is challenging. It's hard, right? We all know that. It's hard for everyone. But there is a different level of hard or a different level of challenge when you're a woman. And there's a different level of hard or a different level of challenge when you are black or brown or someone who just doesn't look like everyone else there. And, um, you know, feedback, just think about something as simple as, you know, quote unquote feedback. When you tell someone who is a part of the quote unquote majority, right? When you're a woman and also when you're from a structurally marginalized group, sometimes it's hard to know if that feedback is real. Sometimes it's hard to know if that feedback is just given to you because of who you are, because of who you are compared to other people, because of who you are compared to that person. Sometimes it's just hard to know, are they being more hard on me because of that? So what I think when it comes to mentoring or giving advice or feedback or specific technical tips and tricks, when you're giving those to individuals who are not the traditional majority, I think that number one, there has to be a level of trust that's between you and that person. You need to understand kind of where they're coming from and they need to understand where you're coming from because you don't want them to take the information and just feel like you're ragging on them. You know, like you don't, you don't want them to feel like you're just saying this because they're black. You're just saying this because they're female. Do you feel like you had a role model for developing this way that you give feedback and mentor? You know, no. I mean, I think I had <laughs> yeah. a lot of bad examples of how to give feedback and how not to give feedback. Maybe not necessarily to me, but things I would see for other people. I have to say, you know, in fellowship, they didn't tell me anything bad. I mean, I felt like it was just good all the time. You know, I, I felt like I was a junior attending. They gave me a lot of autonomy. I felt like I was a part of the group, like I was a partner. And I appreciated that, right? But then at the same time, that doesn't tell, I remember, I think it was my second year, maybe three months before I'm about to finish. And I remember one of the attendings was complaining, oh yeah, you know, this first year fellow, they didn't even run the list with me this morning. They didn't tell me about the patients this morning. And I was like, we're supposed to tell you about the patients every day? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that was the thing that they expected because nobody really said that. And I mean, you know, I think they just trusted that I'm taking care of the team, things are going to be taken care of, and I will bring things up the line, whatever needs to happen. There's always an attending who rounded during the day, but I just didn't call at 7 a.m. to tell them about everything, you know, unless there was a problem. 
And I think they just trusted me enough to do that. But at the same time, I don't know, when I think back, you know, does that, did that necessarily help me? I mean, maybe, I don't know, but maybe there could have been some constructive criticism that could have been given to me at that time that maybe I could have applied. I think you just need to be consistent. I feel like I've gotten a really healthy amount of pre-7 a.m. constructive criticism from you. (laughs) Much appreciated. I can give it any time of day. (laughs) Do you think that the climate or culture has changed for the better or worse for women and minorities in surgery over the past 10 years or maybe since you were in med school? I don't know. I, I wasn't a surgeon 15 years ago, so it's hard for me to know exactly what that environment felt like. I think that people are more open to discussions now than I've heard them be in the past. I would like to think that environments are, relatively speaking, better, um, mostly because there's just a critical mass of women and developing a critical mass of people from structurally marginalized groups. um, You kind of have to change when there's that many people around. (laughs) So I would like to think that there are changes being made. But then when we look above our own station, you don't see that much change. I think that we're moving in the right direction, but then sometimes you wonder how fast are you moving in that right direction? This is really broad, but what do you think is the next frontier of increasing diversity and inclusion in surgery and medicine? That's a good question. Visibility is important. Representation matters. I think what we need to see more of, this is my own personal perspective, Um, I think what we need to see more of is individuals who are in traditionally majority groups and traditionally the leaders in hospitals, in surgery departments, in surgical divisions. I think we need to see more of the sharing of their power. And I don't think that we see enough of that. You know, there are a lot of there are a lot of spaces where you see the white male who's in charge will talk to the white male that they hired and talk about, oh, let's go out and play golf or, oh, let's go do these things together. Or, oh, you had a patient death, come over to my house, we can eat, we can talk, things like that. And those kind of things don't happen to me. I don't know how to golf, but nobody asked me if I want to go. Like they don't know that by looking at me, right? So nobody asked me if I want to go golfing or bowling or anything. The decisions aren't really made in the boardroom, they're made on the golf course, right? Uh, And if you're not going to allow me or ask me to be on the golf course, how can I be a part of making those decisions? And so I think that we need to be in spaces where we bring people who were not traditionally there to those spaces. I think we also need to be in spaces where people are better sponsors, better advocates, and share their power more with individuals who are not themselves or like themselves. Just talking more about mentorship, what is, if you could think of a single piece of advice that you received from a mentor or someone you looked up to in your training that impacted kind of your future trajectory? And then what's something that you often will tell your mentees or your residents and fellows as a piece of advice as they kind of move into their more advanced phases of life? That's a good question. I don't know why this is the first thing that that popped in my head, but I remember we were doing an aortic endarterectomy when I was a first year fellow. It's the first time that the chairman walked into the operating room. I hadn't done a case with him yet. And he walks in the operating room while I'm doing a case with another attending. And so he decides to come to the side of the table where I'm standing. He leans in because he wants to see or put his hands on things or whatever. And I boxed him out. (laughs) I was like, this is my case. You are not taking this case away from me or go to the other side of the table. I'm going to box you out. And he was like, you got to move over, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So I moved a little bit so he could do some things. I think there was like a little tear in the iliac vein or something like that. So, you know, they're working down there. I'm suctioning. And he was, you got to suction better than that. And I said, well, I can't see. 
because <laughs> he kind of pushed me out the way. And he turns to me and says, well, then you need to get somewhere where you can see. And I know it's kind of a weird thing to say, and it almost kind of sounds a little bit aggressive, but I didn't take it that way. What mm -hmm. I would say is I think that we, particularly women and particularly black and, black and brown women, we will often kind of like shrink ourselves in the corners. I think that sometimes we try to make ourselves smaller than what we are. And I think that what he said, and he said a lot of interesting things since then, <laughs> but they all are kind of around that same theme. Don't shrink away in the corner. You need to get somewhere where you can see. This is your case. This is your patient. Be the, you're the player in this field. You need to be on the field. Yeah, and don't have a passive role. Right. You know, yeah. Looking forward to July interns coming in, if any of you guys are listening. Good luck. I want to ask Dr. Alibi, what are characteristics that make a successful intern? And what advice would you give someone starting intern year in July? I would just say, be honest. If you don't know something, just say you don't know it. If you haven't done it before, just say you haven't done it. There's no room for dishonesty in medicine. I have to say that. Dishonesty can kill people. I think also you have to be engaged. If you thought that you were going to go into any part of medicine, but specifically surgery, and this was going to be some sort of like nine to three job, and you're complaining because it's not a nine to three job, maybe you didn't choose the right job. I will also say, I think we always needed to take care of ourselves. But I think nowadays, even more so, we need to do better jobs of taking care of ourselves. I think that there, you know, the levels of what I would describe as like anxiety or just not feeling like they not feeling like they are on the right path or on the right track or living up to the expectations of whoever, like whoever, maybe themselves, but you know, whoever they're believing that they need to live up those expectations for those feelings I feel have heightened. And I don't think that that's going to go away. Um, I think that we just need to do better jobs, taking care of ourselves individually, but then also taking care of ourselves collectively. You know, you were talking about how your parents kind of navigating the healthcare industry kind of inspired you in part to go into medicine. You've always been big into public health. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your health disparities research. Yeah, I'm really interested in vascular surgery and particularly peripheral artery disease quality. We as individual surgeons and as groups, we really do try to provide stellar care for our patients but we could always do better. Um, so that's why I'm really interested in quality in particular and improving the quality of care that we provide. And I think that the biggest threat to quality is health disparities, particularly racial disparities, because we don't know why they happen. We don't really do a good job at trying to understand what the underlying social, political, legal issues are that are really driving race or really what the exposure is, is racism or structural racism. And so I have delved into various different data sets to try to better understand this. I also look at VA data set, which is probably one of the most robust data sets out there. And what I really aimed to do in the beginning when I started was to bust myths. So I remember going to one of my first regional vascular surgery meetings and someone asked the question, well, why do you think black and brown communities have higher rates of amputation than white communities do? Lower extremity amputations, that is. And so somebody asked the question and people got up there and said, they show up too late. They, right? They show up too late. They don't care about themselves. They don't have family or social support systems that'll help them get in somewhere quicker. They have too many comorbidities and they're not taking care of these comorbidities. It's, it's all these things, right? 
What I would say is that I heard a lot of patient blaming for a Mm -hmm. diagnosis that nobody can know they have peripheral artery disease, right? Like you have to go to a doctor and somebody has to tell you, right? And then somebody has to educate you on what exactly that is and what your risk is, depending on how you actually present. And so to say that someone just shows up too late, well, I can tell you most of the people that I meet may have a wound for a year and they may just be meeting me, the vascular surgeon today, but they've been with a primary care doctor. And so to say that they show up too late, it sounds like the patient was trying to do what they needed to do to get the care that they deserved. They just didn't get to a vascular surgeon quickly enough. And I think, you know, we talk a lot in vascular surgery about identity, like who are we as vascular surgeons? I think that we kind of know who we are, but I think that everyone else doesn't. And I think for that reason, because of that identity crisis, people don't know to refer people to us quickly enough. And so I said, I'm going to go out there and do like Mythbusters, right? (laughs) So I'm going to show that Black people and Brown people, at least with this VA data set, show up just as early or just as late, whatever the case may be. They show up at the same time as their white counterparts. And I'm going to show that they try to utilize primary care services and wound cares and podiatry services just as frequently as anyone else. That was a really awesome answer. Okay, now I'm going to pivot. There's a Wiser playlist, and we want to ask you top three favorite songs to play in the OR. You could also give artists, and these will be added to the playlist. I would have to say on my playlist, there would probably be Lauren Hill, probably Beyonce, but not for the entire case. <laughs> like I could play that at the end, you know, like when things are like fine and we're about to close. I don't think I could play that through a whole Ebar explant or something like that. <laughs> Do you have a favorite concert that you've been to? Well, the first concert I ever sang in, I sang background for some of the artists on the Smoking Grooves tour which was amazing. <laughs> I think one of the first artists up that night was Truth Hurts and CeeLo Green was on. Lauren Hill was the big headliner. Outcast was the biggest headliner. I guess the question might be music related, but what would you be doing if you weren't a doctor? When I was in high school, I wanted to be a hairstylist. I mean, it's another kind of thing, like with music, with surgery as well, there's a lot of creativity that you can put into it. You know, you reach people in different places in their life, in different spaces and time in their lives. I've been helped by my hairstylist in different ways. Like my current hairstylist is one of my closest friends. I don't think I thought about this at the time, but I really value her and kind of like what she pours into my life and what she pours into the lives of her clients. And I think that I pour those types of things into the lives of my patients as well, but just obviously in a different way. Can you tell us how it happened that your beautiful home ended up in (laughs) an Atlanta-based architecture? I'll just tell you the story about my renovation. So I bought this condo and I, in my 30s, wanted to live in a space that looked like somebody, you know, in their 30s lived here. And I wanted to come home to a space that I loved coming home to. So I looked through a bunch of different like designers and design build firms, finally settled on one. They happen to be a terracotta design build is the name of it, but they happen to be owned by two architects. And so we hit it off right away. And so it was a great experience. It was a grand total of about four months to renovate my 3,200 square foot condo. And now it is a space that I adore. Like I love, I mean, I, I love going home period, but I love going home now. I don't feel like I need to go on vacation anywhere because I feel like I can vacation at my own home because I love being at home. But I all of a sudden just got some email from Atlanta Home Magazine and they said, hey, 
we're really interested in featuring your condo. Let us know when it's time to like interview. And I was like, what? <laughs> you know, like I thought it was scam <laughs> or something like that. And they came and, um, you know, photographed the home, not while I was home, but they photographed the home and everything. And then they said they wanted like a picture of me. So it turns out they sent a photographer. So they sent a photographer, this lady, Christina, and she comes in. I didn't really recognize her at first, but she comes in and then I realized who she was. So she works the OR front desk at Emory where I work. <laughs> and then, you know, it was since COVID. So it's like always masks on. I've never seen her without a mask on, but I was like, I know this lady from somewhere, right? So I realized it was her. So I called the charge nurse that she's usually on with. I was like, hey, Robin, does Christina like do photography on the side or something like that? She was like, yeah. She told me all about your photo shoot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, thank you. I'm going to let our awesome podcast hosts give us some closing comments. And Dr. Alibi, if there's anything else you want to impart before we close out. I would say I tell a lot of women who are seeking advice about, you know, should I go into medicine? Should I, should I go into surgery? Should I go into vascular surgery? And everyone always asks the same question, which I think at this point, I mean, I hope people would agree at this point. It's kind of an archaic question. You know, like I'm, I'm a girl, I'm a woman. Is this going to be a field that's okay for me? If I want to have kids, if I want to get married, if I want to do this, if I want to do that. And the answer is you can do whatever you want, right? You can be an internal medicine doctor and work a lot of hours. You can be a pathologist and work a lot of hours. You can be a dermatologist. My best friend from med school is a dermatologist in New York, and he works more hours than I do. You just need to find the balance in your life that you need for your family and for your work and for whatever other things that you want to do in your life. And I think that obviously there are still, pe still people out there who are trying to discourage women and discourage others who are not of the traditional majority to go into medicine, to go into surgery, all those things. That I, I believe that those people must still exist because women still ask this question. But the answer is you can do whatever you want. If I can do it, you can do whatever you want. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Allaby, for sharing and for all of your amazing insights. And thank you, Emma and Jess, for hosting this podcast. We can't wait to share this episode with everyone. Thank you, so thank you guys much. for having me. That was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Allaby. <laughs> thank you for tuning into another episode of Wiser. If you like this episode, please rate and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also share with friends and family. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Wiser Podcast for updates. This episode was hosted by Dr. Emma Rooney and Dr. Jess Kielsen. Production support comes from Laura Schwieger, Cynthia Ramazani, and Lizzie Rieger. This episode was edited by Cynthia Ramazani and Grace Wynn. Music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions.